Hello and welcome to the Methades Bible Study Podcast. Methades is the weekly Sunday school class of Ian Pittman. As a teaching ministry of Kokomo Baptist Church, Methades encounters and explores Bible doctrine, theology, and apologetics as a Christian community learning the doctrines of Scripture and the lifestyle they require. Thanks for listening. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time we have to study your word, Lord. I uh, thank you for your word and the lessons that are in it, Lord. And I thank you for the opportunity to con- to, to teach this and hopefully, Lord, to uh, sort of spread your message beyond maybe what was once our private group now that we are in a public group, Lord. And I pray that that um, this would not be misconstrued as some opportunity by me to try to advance my own uh, ministry or anything like that, Lord, but simply that, that uh, we are trying to uh, get this out to as many folks as are possible, Lord. Lord, I pray for uh, those affected by the coronavirus and the, particularly the family that's on my heart uh, this evening, Lord. And I pray that you would be with them, that you would protect them, Lord, and that you would uh, bring a speedy recovery as well. Uh, Lord, I do pray for our leaders that are making these decisions during this tough time. And Lord, I do pray for this coming weekend and this exam that I'm praying, uh, that I'm taking as well, Lord. I'm praying that uh, it would go well. But in all the things that we're doing and in all the things that I'm praying for, Lord, I just pray that your will would be done in in uh, each of these situations, Lord. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. All right, so we're picking up this week with the second part of uh, Jesus's sort of third preaching tour, this tour to the uh, tour in Galilee here to the Jews. And we're not going to totally finish. I thought that we might, but there's just so much going on here in chapter 6 that I didn't want to try to, to rush it all in and get that last section in chapter 7. Uh, so we're going to see this evening Jesus feeding the 5,000. We're going to see him uh, walking on water. And each of these events sort of uh, set set us up for the continuation of what we started a couple of weeks ago, which was a section that I called, Who Then Is This?, based on the disciples' questions. And uh, trying to decide you know, what, what, the, what the nature of Jesus is and who this is that they're, they're you know, wandering around with, sort of doing ministry with, but, but he's got some stuff going on that's sort of bewildering to them. And so this sort of presents itself as an extension of that. Um, not necessarily in the feeding of the 5,000, but as we're going to see, it will be in him walking on water. And then we're going to get another summary report from Mark at the very end on some healings that he does in Gennesaret. Uh, so there are going to be some familiar themes to us tonight. If you've been following along with our study since all of this started, uh, the the faith exhibited by the hemorrhaging woman is going to come back into play, particularly at the end. So you need to keep that in mind. But also this section is, is loaded with um, Old Testament references. Mark is really, really conscious of his Jewish audience during this section, which, as we've discussed, was this, this was written to the Roman church. So it is particularly interesting that he's that cognizant even of his Jewish audience in Rome at the time. Um, so with that being said, then we're, we're, we'll begin, uh, with, uh, this, this first reading of ours, uh, from Mark chapter six, verses 31 through verses thir- uh, 44, excuse me. 
And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy two hundred denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, Five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up the twelve baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were five thousand men. So this is where we begin this evening. Uh with yet another interesting comparison done by Mark, and we know that Mark really enjoys doing these. So uh, this is one of his oblique references both to the past and to the future. We see this feast, this banquet, set against what we've just read about uh, last week with Herod and that murderous banquet which resulted in the death of John the Baptist. So we have that preceding this. But we also have coming the Last Supper, and as we're going to see as we do our verse studies tonight, that there is some language that Mark uses here that he also uses in reference to the Last Supper. And so there's uh, almost undoubtedly some intentionality on Mark's part uh, to bring to the forefront of our mind both the hypocrisy and the uh, immorality of Herod, and yet at the same time that perfect moment, the institution of the Lord's Supper, and perhaps even, though I'm maybe not as confident to say this, but it perhaps even uh, that, that heavenly banquet, the new heaven and the new earth where God's children will all uh, partake in the heavenly feast. And so we have these things layered on top of each other. And coupled with this, then we have this, this indecision um, and this constant questioning by the disciples of who in the world is Jesus? I mean, We've decided to follow him, certainly. We believe in the message that he's teaching. He called us and we answered. But who have we answered? And, and, and what all is going on here? Because this is more than just your ordinary rabbi. But this is also simply a banquet of ministry. Uh, it is to minister to perceived needs and unperceived needs. So we've seen that Jesus teaches them. We're going to spend some time dealing with that as well. But this compassion that Jesus displays stands in direct and stark contrast to Herod's self-serving and deadly party. Now, uh, this is the only miracle that is recorded in all four Gospels. We see it there. Uh, Mark chapter 6, verses 31 to 44. That's where we are this evening. Also, Matthew chapter 14, verses 13, uh, chapter 14, verses 13 to 21, excuse me. Luke chapter 9, verses 12 to 17, and John chapter 6, verses 1 to 4. Now, you can, you can see, and if you have some concept of the length of the Gospels, you can see proportionately sort of where we are uh, 
28 chapters, I believe, in, in Matthew dealing with this, so about halfway. We haven't quite made it halfway uh, in Mark's gospel yet. Uh, we owe that to some particularly long chapters such as this one. Um, but we see that they all very closely put this in the same position. Now, again, we've talked about Mark doesn't always record things chronologically, but for Mark and for any of the other New Testament or Old Testament writers, for that matter, where things are placed within the theology of their own writing is as important as the chronology that they purport uh, to be reporting. Um, so this miracle is recorded in all four Gospels, and we're going to talk about the Church of the Multiplication uh, before I move on. Now, this church is in Tabga, which is on the, the northwest um, side of the Sea of Galilee. This is the site where many Christians believe the feeding of the 5,000 to have taken place. Now, uh, here's a couple more images of it. You can see it's a, it's a, it's a, really, it's a beautiful building. Uh, but what is also a right shame is that this building was burned down in large part in 2015. Uh, so there's always, you know, some of these kinds of things, but this is, this is actually a, a Roman Catholic church was a Roman Catholic church. Um, this is again, where many believe, uh, the feeding to have taken place. Now there is an alternate location given that, uh, is reported in Luke's gospel, which is on the other side. So it's on the Northeast side of the Sea of Galilee at Bethsaida. Um, and there's good arguments to be made for both. If uh, Tabga here is right, then there's going to be some sort of locational issues that arise uh, in Mark, particularly when we talk about uh, them going across the sea, because then we have to decide, are they going across across, or are they kind of cutting a diagonal and just following next to the shoreline, or uh, what's going on here? But... This miracle is so significant to Mark's gospel that it shows up over and over again. And it has a sequel. So it'll be reflected on in verse 15, uh, 52. Excuse me, I can't read tonight. Uh, it'll be reflected on in verse 52. There's a sequel in chapter 8, verses 1 to 10, which we'll be getting to soon. And this is right before the disciples' recognition of who Jesus is. It'll show back up in chapter 8, immediately before Peter's admission of who Jesus is, chapter 8, verses 17 to 21. And then, of course, as we've discussed, it sort of foreshadows the, the Last Supper. And there's a reference there, if you want to look at it, compare verses, uh, chapter 6, verse 41, and chapter 14, verse 22. Uh, now, the first prerequisite of discipleship is being with Jesus. Okay. Discipleship entails both being on mission for Jesus, but also being on mission with Jesus. So the enlisting of their service, as we see it here, does not eclipse or usurp their fellowship with him. And now I'm talking very specifically in verses 31 and 32. Um, before I move there, here's that comparison verse, uh, chapter 6, verse 52. For they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened, Chapter 14, verse 22, institution of the Lord's Supper. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them, and said, Take, this is my body. Uh, so we see the bread and the loaves, and sort of that 
that theme being connected through there. All right. So back to verse 31, he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while for many were coming and going and they had no leisure even to eat. Now, uh, Mark uses here two Greek phrases to indicate the priority of Jesus's relationship with the 12. And this relationship that we're talking about is, is a very personal relationship. This isn't a teacher relationship. Um, but this is a, an, an individual to individual, individual to group, uh, sort of how you might identify with your friends sort of relationship. And so the first, now many of you know that I have no formal training in Greek. So if I mispronounce this, I'm sorry. Um, but, uh, the first phrase that we're looking at is kat idion. It means by yourselves. The second is erimon tapon, which means a desolate place. What do we get from that? The gathering of the disciples to Jesus in the midst of the busyness to a desolate place indicates that they are accountable to him alone. Likewise, the greater the demands on the disciples, the greater their need to be with Jesus. And so we see this many were coming and going and they had no leisure even to eat. So who is it that, that takes care of them and gives them leave to go and, and rest and eat? It's, it's Jesus. Now he hasn't, Mark has not given us any lead ins to what this many were coming and going, what that actually entails. And he actually chooses a different word for the crowd here than he has used previously. Uh, the word he's previously used is oklos. Uh, but here he chooses poloi. And this is that, that, that many that we're talking about. And uh, when we get a little further in, we're going to discuss, does this mean many men? And I'll just go ahead and, and spoil it for you a little bit. It means both. Uh, we're going to have men, and we're also going to have the women and the children. So when we're talking about feeding the 5,000, the number 5,000 is the 5,000 men. That's not taking into account, as I understand it, or as many commentators understand it, the women and the children that were there and associated with uh, these these men. But we're going to return to that in a little bit. So Jesus and the disciples, they get into a boat and they go to a deserted area. Uh, now, here's where I'm talking about we have two, two options. Um, we have the option of, oops, we have the option of Bethsaida, you see that there, northeastern corner, if you will call it that, of the Sea of Galilee. And then we have Tabga. Now, the reason that this is going to be so problematic for us is because you see there in the image on the left, uh, Tabga is so very close to Gennesaret. It is presumed that Jesus walks across the sea, or in walking across the Sea of Galilee, that he's walking from Tabga across to, uh, or rather, he's walking from Bethsaida across to Gennesaret, and that's where the boat is going. However, if the Tabga location is correct, then you see they really don't have that, that far a distance to travel. Uh, so, so that is the question, and I guess the, the burning question that exists with which area are we, are we talking about? Um, 
in relation to that. So, sorry, a, a one-man show here trying to do a PowerPoint and, and control a camera. It's some acrobatics. Uh, that that hill country that we see there in Bethsaida, that is where Luke reports it, and he reports it in chapter 9 and verse 10. It is a reasonable suggestion, if for no other reason than the, the travel that will be mentioned in the narrative of Jesus walking across the water. Now, in verse 33, we've seen time and again that Jesus and his disciples are not afforded the solitude that they seek. Uh, earlier, the disciples themselves have interrupted Jesus' need for solitude back in chapter 1, verses 35 to 39. It's been a long time since we were there. Uh, but now the crowd is going to interrupt theirs. Now, perhaps the boat hits a strong headwind, but the crowd, if the Greek is correct, the crowd beats them there. Um, there is an argument to be made that they get there about the same time, uh, but the Greek would indicate that no, in all actual fact, uh, the crowd beats them there. If so, if the crowd gets there first, then we have to acknowledge the remarkable intentionality on the part of the crowd um, because they take that initiative to sort of follow the boat, not only follow the boat, but they have to kind of guess where it's going because they, they get there first. Um, but when they get there, Jesus doesn't show the irritation that we would expect him after having his rest interrupted again. Um, he looks upon the crowd with compassion. Now, the Greek word there for compassion is splunknitsomai, and this word is used in the New Testament only of Jesus and generally in reference to his teaching them. So we see there, verse 34, when he went ashore and saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And what did he do? He began to teach them many things. That compassion is tied to that teaching. Just as the Greek word there, that compassion is tied to Jesus' teaching. Um, he sees, again, he sees the multitude as a sheep with, as sheep without a shepherd. Now, this is an Old Testament image, and this is where all of this starts working together. And in all honesty, I had not thought so much about this in my previous readings of Mark. But this has become one of my favorite moments because of how, how loaded it is. And yet how offhandedly Mark presents it because... We have to remember the audience that Mark is writing to wouldn't have needed context clues necessarily, not like we need, because they would have seen the ones that are there. Um, but for us, it's a totally different story, and so this is this is really very fascinating to me. Um, the sheep without a shepherd. Of course, we have direct references to this, Numbers chapter 27, verse 17, and Ezekiel chapter 34, verse 5. And these two uh, references occur are associated with the wilderness. Okay. So Jesus then, like Moses, leads his people into the wilderness, and then, like David, as Ezekiel reports, provides them rest. But the, the shepherd of the sheep is also a common military term, or a common term for a military hero who would muster Israel's forces to war. Now, this is particularly interesting because you'll remember that one of the messianic ideas that had developed in the intertestamental period 
uh, which which Jesus sort of comes onto the scene after. Uh, one of their ideas is that the Messiah is going to be this military Messiah, that he's going to come in and he's going to overthrow Rome, he's going to save them from that, and that the kingdom of God is going to be an earthly kingdom, is going to be the reestablishment of the line of David on the throne. And this is what they expect of the Messiah for some of them. Now, others, you know, of course, as we've talked about, there were several different ideas of, of multiple messiahs or one messiah with multiple roles, but the common one was the military messiah. And particularly, we have to think about this sort of as we might in our contemporary world. Um, many denominations have been influenced by uh, liberation theology, which is simply that you might even call it deliverance theology in some degree. This is this is particularly uh, pronounced in in the African American church, um, where there may be suffering for a time, or there may be uh, even enslavement for a time, or whatever like that. Uh, but that that God is going to deliver them. He's going to bring them out. He's going to liberate them. The children of Israel. That's a common theme. This is like proto liberation theology. This liberation theology is also very. It's a hot ticket item in Mexico as well. Um, this is this is that that sort of original liberation theology mindset that we're going to get a military messiah that's going to come in and he's going to take over everything and we might even get a political messiah that's going to going to reestablish the throne or hey maybe they're the same person and that would be cool too. Um, so even though Mark has spent all this time avoiding playing with the messianic ideas and he shows Jesus doing all of these things to keep people from making those associations with him. He also squeezes just a little bit in because it's not all entirely wrong. It's just wrong in excess. And it's wrong in its timing. So we see there, we have a number of, of verses which uh, reference this, this shepherd of the sheep. Uh, and a couple even in the Apocrypha, which you will remember is, is sort of the, the writings of that intertestamental period. Um, so what it's a metaphor for, for hegemony, that, that, that this military leadership and this military victory is going to bring power all back under Israel's roof. Uh, they're going to be able finally to do away with the boot of Rome. And Jesus, knowing this, seeing this very compassionately, sees these people, they have no direction, they have no purpose, and they have no leader. I mean, in a sense, he is this shepherd that they've been looking. Of course, this, this image is associated with, with Jesus regularly, uh, but not in this military sense necessarily. But Jesus doesn't use the opportunity to, to be this military messiah or to reveal himself in such a way. He teaches them. And it is custom with Mark, as we've seen. He does not focus on the thing being taught. He focuses on the teacher. He focuses on the one doing the teaching. But when we get to verses 35 and 36, uh, the day is beginning to get darker and the disciples are beginning to be concerned about the distance and desertion of the, of the surroundings. And this is the third time that they express this concern just in, the, in this passage alone. They do it in verse 31, verse 32, and now in verse 35. But we see here, and I, this is always fun to me when the disciples and Jesus sort of start 
you know, locking horns over these sorts of things, um, because we see the very practical theology of Jesus and the very practical instincts then of the disciples sort of butting heads with one another. They're ready to send the people out to go get their own food, and why not? That's a reasonable suggestion. We go to a meeting or we go to something today. What do we do? Well, we go out into the hallway if they've provided food for us, or they give us a lunch break, and we go and we take a couple of hours, and we eat, and we come back and reconvene. This is the suggestion of the disciples, but this is not Jesus' suggestion. He intensifies what they perceive as a massive crisis by commanding them to feed the crowd. Now, you know, as I just said, we go out into the hallway and we, we, we get the food if we're at one of these meetings that provides it, but what do they have? Advance notice, they've prepared. What have the disciples not done, been able to prepare? Uh, and so we see them, I think, sarcastically, and I really, based on my own personal view of, of the individual disciples, I sort of don't have much doubt. It was probably Peter who looks at him and says, well, shall we go buy food for them? Shall we go buy, what is it, 200 denarii worth of food for them? Uh, when clearly the, these are, you know, itinerant missionaries, they probably don't have that kind of money. Uh, not at this point in the ministry anyway. But in the end, as always happens with the Lord's commands, they do exactly what he tells them to do. And so they go, and they find out how much bread they have, and they go, and they find out how many fish they have, and they tell him. But the disciples, you know, I, I give them a hard time here, but they're not unlike Moses. And we see this, here we go again, Numbers chapter 11, when he's confronted with feeding the Israelites in the wilderness. That same concern is what we have here from the disciples. When we get to verses 38 to 40, and we get back to this common theme, which we talked about last week with the disciples' mission, and now here we are again, total trust on God for all physical needs. The burden is on Jesus to supply the bread for his own command. They go and they find it, but how do you make five loaves feed 5,000 people? So despite these pitiful resources, Jesus commands the crowd to sit in groups of hundreds and fifties, and here's some more Old Testament for you. Um, groups of uh, such size, yeah, they made the crowd more manageable, but they may have had more than just a utilitarian function. And this is how Moses orders the Israelites to sit under their respective leaders in groups of 1,500, 110, uh, and that's in Exodus chapter 18 and Numbers uh, chapter 31, those first two references that we see there. But we also see that similar formations were practiced in the Qumran community. And what we'll remember about the Qumran community is this is the area where the Dead Sea Scrolls uh, were discovered. And I'm sorry if you hear dogs barking in the background. We avoid what we can. Um, and so what I've put on the screen there, um, on the on the right-hand side of the screen, is from... That one QS is simply the first Qumran scroll, um, which were found that are not part of the Dead Sea Scrolls, and this is the community rule. Now, there's another one found here that, that is the war scroll, and this is one of those that details sort of a military political messiah. Um, I have often made the joke that I would like to be important enough to have my own war scroll, but anyway. Uh, so... In the community rule here, beginning in section 19, they say, Thus shall they do year by year for as long as the dominion of Satan endures. Uh, what, a, what an epic way to begin. 
the priests shall enter first, ranked one after another, according to the perfection of their spirit. Hmm. Then the Levites, and thirdly, all the people, one after another, in how there are thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens, that every Israelite may know his place in the community of God, according to the everlasting design. No man shall move down from his place, nor move up from his allotted position. So we have a, a very strict hierarchy sort of caste system going on in the Qumran community. But we see this with Moses. They're just sort of re, reinterpreting it and using it themselves. And they're using this arrangement. And what this calls to mind, no doubt, for Mark's readers is the miraculous provision for the Israelites in the wilderness. Likewise, it probably indicates, again, this is one of those things where I don't know if we can push it this far, but I, I think we can, at least on a theological level, whether Mark's thinking this way or not, I don't know. But it also brings to mind the eschatological gathering of God's people on the last day. But here we see Jesus presiding over the multitude like a happy Jewish father at, at the family meal. Uh, he just, he's provided for them. He makes it available for them. And what does he do in verse 41? He, he prays, just as any pious Jew would have done. Now, we don't know what Jesus prayed. Mark didn't record it for us, but the usual prayer was the Thanksgiving or Eucharist prayer, and it would have read, Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who bringeth forth bread from the earth. Now, we're not given any indication of how the miracle was performed. I mean, of course, are we ever? All we know is that Jesus broke the elements and he distributed them. Now, you know, I could, I could run some rabbits on this in comparison with the, with the Last Supper, and I won't do that. But uh, what I will say is if you encounter Roman Catholic theology and the doctrine of the real presence, that Christ is in the elements of what good Baptists call communion, but what you may also hear is, is the Eucharist or for the Catholics, the Mass, that Christ is present in the elements there. And the objection has been raised that if that is the real body and that is the real blood, well, eventually the body and the blood would have to run out because that's a, that's a material thing. The counter to that would be this section here because it does align so closely. And they would say, it is the miracle of the Lord that the bread continues to divide. Uh, and certainly in this scenario, it is the miracle of the Lord that the bread would continue to divide. Now, of course, good Baptists, we don't believe that. On a, on a good day, we think they're in an they're in, uh, element of grace, that, that, that Christ is at the table with us. And on a normal day, we just think they're symbolic. Um, but the phrasing of verse 41 is so similar to that of, of chapter 14, verse 22, the institution of the Last Supper, that Mark has to be thinking about at least the comparison on the part of the disciples. So we get to verses 42 through 44, and Mark gives us this really brief understatement, which he's, you know, very good at, we've learned by now, where he simply says, and they all ate and were satisfied. After Jesus has just done this, they all ate and were satisfied. But the word all is, is particularly important. Nowhere in Jewish life does the Torah and the oral tradition regulate and govern any more strictly than at table. The effect of kosher, which, I mean, we, there are, of course, still 
uh, practicing Jews who, who practice kosher. Uh, I think most of them, even the Messianic Jews do, I'm, I'm fairly certain. But the effect of kosher for, for these Jews was to ensure that only the proper foods that were properly prepared were eaten with the proper people who were properly clean. Unclean foods and unclean persons were necessarily excluded from this. But we see here at this ritual banquet that the that the that the wilderness banquet that the ritual man I can't talk the ritual hierarchy of kosher is abandoned in favor of this open invitation and inclusiveness of all people. I mean, there there's no questionnaire going around asking if you're a good observant Jew. It's it's just Jesus is just like feed the people. This is also not, not a small meal. I mean, this is not like a midday snack that just tides them over until dinner time. Mark tells us they're satisfied. Why are they satisfied? Because this is an expression of Jesus' teaching. We're not told what he was teaching, but we always know, as we have seen, that Jesus' ministry is an embodied ministry, that he practices what he preaches. We even see that there is so much given that there are baskets left over for the disciples. But now we return to this gender question that we brought up in verse 31. Was this simply 5,000 men? No. Uh, Men in this instance is gender specific, but it is not limiting. Uh, So we have two Greek words. We have Andres and Anthropoi. And I am confident on those pronunciations. Uh, Andres is very specific. It is with re- with a reference to sex and so to distinguish a man from a woman. Conversely, the more commonly used word anthropoi, it is universally with reference to the genus or nature, but without a distinction of sex, a human being, whether male or female. But that's not the word that's used in verse 44. You see it bolded there, and those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. That word is Andres. All right. This doesn't, however, preclude women and children. And I think that's often where we go wrong. Matthew chapter 14, verse 21, his accounting of this helps us on this issue, beginning there actually in verse 20. And they all ate and were satisfied, and they took up twelve baskets full of the broken pieces left over. And those who ate were about five thousand men, besides women and children. So we're talking about ten thousand, fifteen thousand. Who actually knows how many are here? But it is estimated, of course, in in the number of men, because men were head of the household, and uh, the the uh, Jewish patriarchy being. The, the 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 numbering system there is very rare that that women are used in that sort of official counting or anything like that so that is what we have about the feeding of the 5000 its importance and what we have there but this next section is going to continue this this emphasis on uh, the old testament imagery that's found here and this is the section of Jesus walking on the water. Now, at this point, I'm going to go ahead and, and warn you that I'm probably going to go over my typically allotted hour. Sorry, not sorry. <laughs> so here we are 
chapter 6, verses 45 to 52. Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida. There's our dilemma. Well, he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And when he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them, and about the fourth watch of night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out. For, all, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Now, we're going to take a, a step back here from, from the biblical context and bring it forward just a little bit, not, not to our current era necessarily, but we're going to bring it forward because this passage, the Jesus that's presented here, was the subject of extraordinarily intense scrutiny during the Enlightenment and the post-Enlightenment era. Uh, so the Enlightenment was this intellectual movement in Europe from 1715 to 1789, 1789 being the year of the French Revolution when, when you know, all rationale and logic sort of went out the window uh, thanks to that. Uh, but the Enlightenment is still largely responsible for our Western mindset. This is where we get our notions of individualism and, and all such things as that. Because it values logic and reason over emotion. What this also means, however, is that every everything has to have a material and rational explanation. So it dispenses with the notion of miracles and the supernatural. Now, I'm going to ruin your, your opinion probably of one of our great American presidents, and I hate to do that, but Thomas Jefferson, uh, the third president of the United States, was a student of the Enlightenment, and he develops the Jefferson Bible. You see that there on the, on the right-hand side. It's completed in around 1804. There are no uh, surviving copies of this. Now you say, wait a minute, there's a picture of that on the screen. Yes and no. What this is a picture of is is known as the Jefferson Bible. Now I have a copy of a facsimile of the Jefferson Bible. Um, this is open to Matthew's gospel, if you can see that or not. But but if you look closely, and maybe I'll, I'll make this a bit bigger. Uh, if you look closely there, you can see the cutout portions. Because Jefferson goes in and he does away with the virgin birth he does away with any of the miracles. Uh, he even removes the resurrection because none of these have a good material explanation. And so this is a product of the Enlightenment. This is what we have, uh, the inability to do this. And yet we have this section where Jesus walks on the water, which of course stands far and away above any sort of material explanation because water cannot suspend human weight. I mean, we, we all know this as children, thanks to uh, the recording of this in the various gospel narratives. I think we've probably all tried it. It doesn't work. Uh, something else has to be going on. And so the Enlightenment, the, 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 the theologians of the Enlightenment, in the Enlightenment we see the rise of deism, which is that there is a sort of non-personal creator God who created the world and then sort of left it to its own devices. 
they see Jesus as a good moral teacher. And in fact, Jefferson, Ben Franklin's another one of these. They, they of course, speak highly of Christ as far as any of us can tell by just uh, yeah, face reading of their works. Uh, they were all Christians, and yet they were also committed deists. Now, Jeff, uh, not Jefferson, Benjamin Franklin once remarked when someone asked him where he went to church that he liked to go to church at the Episcopal uh, Church down the road because he enjoyed the people. Um, so there you go. The Enlightenment disavows the possibility of embodied deity. Now, I have ruined your opinion of these two guys, probably, but, but let me leave you with a particularly inspiring quote from uh, President Jefferson. Don't believe everything you read on Facebook. Okay, sorry, <laughs> I had to do it. Uh, but what do we see here? We see the Enlightenment starting from the premise of the inviolable, inviolable laws of nature. I'm going to go ahead to the next slide. Uh, the inviolable laws of nature, that nature governs everything, including the presence of the so-called supernatural, because in fact, there is no such thing as a supernatural. The word itself is an oxymoron in their mind. All things in the world have to, are, must be capable of, of rationalistic explanation. And because of this, they advance some highly questionable and far-reached explanations for this narrative. Now, the guy you see here on the screen, uh, Albert Schweitzer. Uh, Schweitzer is a late 19th century, early 20th century theologian. Uh, brilliant guy. He's, a, he's an Austrian guy. He had a doctor of divinity and also a doctorate in organ performance. The man uh, went to, I think it's China, for 40 years as a missionary, and the only time he ever returned home to Austria was to do organ performances to raise money for his mission so he could go back. Uh, an astounding person, kind of got some of his theology wrong, but anyway, he publishes in 1906 The Quest of the Historical Jesus, and this traces the really the en Enlightenment question uh, all the way from sort of the beginning questions of the Enlightenment forward to sort of where the Enlightenment landed. And what you see in, in this quest for the historical Jesus is that many of these Enlightenment figures saw this narrative particularly as an optical illusion caused by Jesus walking on the shore, but the storm was bad and the rain was bad, so it looked like he was walking on the water, and that's what freaked the disciples out. Or he was actively deceiving them by walking on the sandbar. Uh, of course, the effect of this preoccupation to try to disprove Jesus doing anything supernatural was to limit the possibilities of the story and, of course, eclipse its meaning as well. Uh, now, I think I failed to make one thing clear on the Jefferson Bible, so I'm going to go back there for a minute. What Jefferson eventually does is he takes the... You saw where he had cut out specific sections. Well, what he kind of does is he goes back and he inverts that and he pastes together all the sections that he wants. And it's a quadriglot, so it has four languages in it, English, French, Greek, and Latin. And they're, they're done in columns. All the of the same verses sort of correlating to one another, uh, but leaving out uh, those supernatural events. Okay, so returning then to to the the Bible, beginning in verses 45 to 46, you have to read these verses in tandem with the conclusion of the feeding of the 5,000. 
Um, and particularly this unmistakable urgency in this verse. Mark records immediately. They did this. Now, we know Mark has a sense of urgency throughout the book, as we talked about at the beginning of this study. He just sort of gives us one thing after another, after another, after another, and there's never any rest. The two times that Jesus is going to rest, we've seen. From here on to the end of chapter 16, Jesus doesn't get another break as far as Mark is concerned. The Greek in this, this immediately, the Greek here means they were compelled post-haste. So with great speed, they were they needed to get out of there. Um, Jesus chooses to dismiss this crowd alone. He sends the disciples away, and he himself is going to stay back. Why? Wouldn't he want to get away as well? Well, John actually answers this for us. Uh, chapter 6, verses 14 to 15. So we see there. Verse 45, and Mark, immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. John chapter 6, verse 14 to 15, when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet. So remember, we talked about the prophet from Deuteronomy 18. They now realize this. This is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him a king, Jesus withdrew again to the, to the mountain by himself. So Jesus understands that the disciples, of course, he's operating here, and, and this is Mark giving us another one of these moments, fully divine and fully human, but because of that, he recognizes that the disciples are not unsusceptible to these uh, revolutionary sort of uh, calls and expectations of the Messiah. And so now they see him do this this miracle, and as John reports it there, they begin to wish to act on uh, these impulses. The Greek, again, indicates that the disciples are reluctant to leave. At this point, I think they've probably figured out that when they're not with Jesus, they tend to have problems. But they went on that mission, and they did fine, so I guess they go. Uh, but he wishes to remove the disciples to keep them from being influenced by this, and then he calms the crowd and gets them to leave before they indulge those messianic beliefs, uh, and, and he hopes to avert this sort of revolutionary groundswell. But then he departs to pray. This is further evidence of the crisis of the situation. Mark only records Jesus' prayers three times. Now, Jesus prays other times, but as we've seen with with that blessing over the over the uh, feeding of the 5,000. But the prayers themselves are only recorded three times. Uh, we have chapter 1, verse 35, and rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. Now here what we're looking at, chapter 6, verse 46, and after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And then the third is there in chapter 14, again, uh, verses 35 to 39, uh, this is in the Garden of Gethsemane, and going a little further, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, Simon, and you asleep, could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. So those are the three prayers that we have of Jesus as recorded by Mark. 
each of these prayers is at night. He's by himself. And it's in a lonely place. Now, yeah, the disciples were, were there in the garden, but, you know, he goes away from them to pray. So given the nature of the passage, given the nature of the other two prayers that we have recorded, we're, it's safe to say that Jesus sees this as a crisis, and this is a particularly difficult moment for him. And I think it may even be safe to say that the Isaiah suffering servant motif comes into play here, that he goes to pray to reaffirm his divine sonship, not as a military hero, but as that servant. But in verses 45 to 50, the focus is going to shift away from Jesus to the disciples. Now, that doesn't mean that Jesus is not the focus. It's simply that we have to get in the mindset of the disciples to focus on Jesus, if you will. So as verse 47 shows, whenever the disciples are removed from Jesus, they are in distress. As I said before, I think their reluctance to leave was probably because they figured this out. Now, the Sea of Galilee could normally be crossed in six to eight hours, even in the roughest conditions. Now, remember uh, the location issue. If they're in Bethsaida, then they're going straight across to Gennesaret. If they're in Tabga, then they're just kind of hooking around here. Um, I think because they're in such distress, we might be safer to go with, with Luke's bet that they're in Bethsaida rather than sort of the traditional view that they were in Tabga. But, you know, that is up to you. Um, you make that decision for yourself or whether or not you go along with anything that I say in these you get to make for yourself um, anyway so it could normally be crossed in six to eight hours in the roughest conditions however they're unable to do this because they hit this this storm this rough gale and it is probably the one that is known as sharkia which is just Arabic for shark um, but this is an early evening gale that that uh, historically they're uh, recorded historical documents where this causes great apprehension for the fishermen. You don't want to be on the Sea of Galilee when this thing comes through. Uh, so to understand just how rough these conditions were, then if we return to the Greek here and we look at that, the word that is used, so if you're looking at the NIV, you're going to see where they were straining at the oars. This is the phrase that's used there. The ESV doesn't have this. It just sort of kind of, it works around it a little bit. But the word which the NIV translates as straining is actually the same word that is used for torment related to demon possession, childbirth, suffering in hell, or the torment of a righteous soul forced to live among the unrighteous. Uh, so there's no indication here of any uh, supernatural means necessarily, but it is that, that intense of a struggle. So Jesus appears then, or, or begins toward them in the fourth watch of the night. Now this would have been between three and six in the morning by following the Roman custom of dividing the night into four watches instead of three, uh, Mark is sort of going against the typical Jewish custom, uh, which was the three watches as opposed to four watches. This is probably reflective of his leadership that he's writing to the Roman church and probably at this point writing to some, some uh, Gentile believers. Um so there is no way, though, to translate this in any other way other than Jesus walked on water. The Enlightenment, as many uh, hermeneutical gymnastics as they did to get around this, you just can't do it. Uh, and it is precisely to Jesus' divinity that Mark is appealing. 
In the Old Testament, only God can walk on water. And so we see some verses here. Uh, Job chapter 9, chapter 38, Psalm 77, Isaiah chapter 43, and even uh, Ben Sirach in the Apocrypha and uh, chapter 24 there. Um, We see, just like the forgiveness of sins and his power over nature, and also his ability to command the Spirit, we see another indication that Jesus is fully God because of his ability to walk on the water. Now, this is... You have to hold on to this, and you have to think about this in in Old Testament terms. Um, And we do ourselves a disservice. Let me run this rabbit for a minute. But we do ourselves a disservice by, by segregating the New Testament away from the Old Testament. These Old Testament writers were Jewish. They were raised around this stuff, and so they write in a way that makes use of that knowledge base because they're also writing to primarily other Jews. And so it's there. Now, of course, we we see that there is application to be made without necessarily knowing uh, this Old Testament background that's here. And yet, how much deeper and richer is it for us now that we do know this? And so we have more Old Testament implications because it says that Jesus was intending to pass them by. This doesn't mean he was intending to sort of like go out on the sea and walk by them and not look at them. Like I have people do that to me on the sidewalk at Southern sometimes. Uh, That's not what Jesus is doing here. He's not being rude or unfriendly or or hanging them out to dry or drown or whatever. Um, This is the same kind of passing by that God does for Moses on Mount Sinai or that he does for Elijah at Mount Horeb. But the most important antecedent of this is actually in Job, and this is not a place where we might think to look at this, but if you will, there it is. I have it backwards. It's Job chapter 9, verse 8, and verse 11. God alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea. Behold, he passes by me, and I see him not. He moves on, but I do not perceive him. Of course, this now bears linguistic and thematic similarities with verse 48. Uh, trampled the waves of the sea contains the same wording as Mark and the same crucial word for passes by. Furthermore, we have this declaration from Jesus of it is I. Now, the Greek word that is used here is ego eimi. This is the same word that, or the same wording that the Septuagint uses in the Old Testament, Exodus chapter 3, for one reference, where God says to Moses, I am who I am. Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. So when Jesus says, but uh, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid, what he is saying is, take heart, I am. Further indication, further association, that he is in fact God. Now this Job quotation that we just looked at a moment ago summarizes a section beginning in Job chapter 9 which details a God beyond human limitation and categorization. This God cannot be conceived of in human categories. And so then the God that is described in Mark by way of Job, now we see this, and by way of Jesus' own phrasing here, I am. He is holy God, he is holy other, not not H-O-L-Y, but W-H-O-L-L-Y, holy. Uh, And he can never be confused with any ordinary human being. The God of Israel is now 
passing by the believers of Jesus of Nazareth. In the person of Jesus of Nazareth. Now, this is some weird sort of Trinitarian stuff that's going on here. Uh, again, I, we don't have time to develop this out so much, but in a study of the Trinity, and particularly in the doctrine of God or in the doctrine of the Holy Spirit either way, we have to address some of some of this because it is Jesus fully and totally and Mark by way of Jesus fully and totally identifying him with God. This answers the question, who then is this? It's back and now it's answered, but the disciples don't know it. We're going to see that in verse 52 in just a minute. In this respect, Mark's Christology is no less sublime than John's, but the difference is we have in John's gospel, Jesus declaring, chapter 10, verse 36, we have Jesus declaring that he is the Son of God. We have Mark here with Jesus showing that he is the Son of God. Now, the disciples' responses, and I'm not even going to spend a lot of time here because the disciples' response is no doubt familiar to us at this point. They're shrieking in fear. They believe him to be a ghost. But he calms them. And how does he do this? By who he is. And so in verse 51, then, we have another miracle given. When Jesus enters the boat, the wind dies down. Now, you know, we talked a couple of weeks back, about three weeks now, maybe, uh, about Jesus calming the storm. He gets up and he speaks and it calms down. This time he gets into the boat and it calms down. There is some unmistakable relationship, folks, with Jesus' getting into the boat and the calming of the wind. Mark then relates his explanation of the disciples' panic at seeing Jesus walking on the water and their amazement at the calming of the wind to their failure to understand about the multiplication of the loaves. This is verse 52. Had they understood about the loaves, they would have been prepared to understand the walking on water and the calming of the waves. But their problem was a Christological one. They failed to answer their own question or to see the answer of their own question. Who then is this? Well, he's told them. Ego eimi. I am. So not unlike Jesus' opponents, then their hearts are hardened. Now, we've talked about that as well. It's not a permanent state, despite the fact that we like to, despite the way that we like to preach it. It's not a permanent state, as we're going to see with the disciples. But we've seen hardened hearts previously identified with outsiders, the Pharisees, the, the priests, those in the synagogues. Now, all of a sudden, we're seeing it applied to the insiders. Discipleship is more endangered by the lack of faith and hardness of heart than it is by external physical dangers. And so now we turn to the summary report of Mark, Jesus healing the sick in Gennesaret. Beginning in verse 53, when they had crossed over, they came to the land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him. Surprise. And ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came, in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. So he concludes these events surrounding the feeding of the 5,000 with another healing report. There are no proper nouns in this report except Gennesaret. 
The people are not further identified, nor the region, nor the towns. And this is Mark's third such summary report. We're seeing a lot of thirds come up here, but this is his third such summary report, which serves to indicate to us that the ministry of Jesus surpasses those recorded events in the, the, the specific recorded events in any of the Gospels, his own or any of the other three. Um, I often have had uh, people ask me just in conversation various things, but basically why is it that all the Gospels don't match up in terms of what they've reported? Uh, or why don't we have more? Why are they not longer? If they claim to be a comprehensive biography, why is there not more? Well, Mark is giving it to us in the nature of his writing that there is so much that it extends beyond and it surpasses what he has the capability to include. Now, Jesus, verse 53, stays with the disciples in the boat and crosses over with them to Gennesaret, referring either to the plain north of Magdala uh, on the western side of the lake or to a city in the plain. So, it might be the plain, or it might be a specific place in the plain, given the nature of this, where it says, and wherever he came in villages, cities, or countryside, I'm going to say it was probably the plain, so that he sort of made a circuit and traveled. Now, one thing about this region of Gennesaret, it had very fertile soil, so it was able to sustain a large population, hence it had multiple cities, villages, um, and also then its countryside. Perhaps another argument to be made for the region rather than the particular place. So this section serves as a summary of Jesus' work in Galilee before he withdrew to other regions. What we're going to see next week, beginning in chapter 7, verses 1 to 23, is his disagreement with the Pharisees over the oral tradition. And that's going to be the end of this uh, preaching tour to the Jews. So basically, this is this is the last public thing that we have here, and then what will happen is this disagreement with the authorities, and then he's going to leave this area, and he will not return publicly, as we mentioned last week, before he enters Jerusalem, uh, then as the Messiah. This summary resembles the summaries in chapter 1, verses 32 to 34, and in chapter 3, verses 7 to 12, if you want to go back and sort of make some comparisons though it doesn't make any mention of exorcisms, and that's the first time that those have been left out. In this one, we see the widespread fame of Jesus as a healer. Now, I said that the hemorrhaging woman was going to come back, and this is where it comes back. There, verse 56, uh, and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment, and as many as touched it were made well. Of course, immediately the bells start going off in our head. That is indeed what he's talking about. But I didn't explain the fringes so much last time, so... Uh, ah, I forgot about this slide. Uh, there's a there's a circle for you where Gennesaret is at a different angle, sort of, and you see Magdala there, and so to the north of the plain. Uh, Gennesaret would have been a city closer to the seaside, of course. So back to the fringe and the tassels then. Um, these were worn still are worn by Orthodox Jews, and some Messianic Jews sort of use them ceremonially at this point. Um, but, and uh, Reformed Jews as well, uh, those that are not Orthodox, but 
are not convinced that Jesus is the Messiah, so they sort of sit in the middle. That's the majority of what we have in the United States are Reformed Jews. Um, in any case, uh, Numbers chapter 15, verses 37 to 39, you can see there, the Lord said to Moses, speak to the people of Israel and tell them to make tassels on the corners of their garments throughout their generations and to put a cord of blue on the tassel of each corner. And it shall be a tassel for you to look at and remember all the commandments of the Lord to do them, not to follow after your own heart and your own eyes, which you are inclined to whore after. Not my words, the Bibles, as Brother Glenn likes to say. <laughs> and then uh, Deuteronomy chapter twenty-two, twelve. again, you shall make yourself tassels on the four corners of the garment with which you cover yourself. And so there you see an image of, of those, particularly with the blue running through them. Uh, this is not that Jesus has on a frayed cloak because he's poor. This is Jesus being a good, observant Jew. We need to not forget that our Lord was born a Jew, was crucified a Jew, and was resurrected a Jew. Uh, he might be the founder of Christianity and the person for whom it is named, but he's not a Christian, as we think of that. We don't see the term Christian being used to refer to believers until Acts, the book of Acts. This is after Jesus has ascended. So, um, his being a Jew, he's got this on, and it's, it's these tassels that they're reaching out and touching. It's those tassels that the, the hemorrhaging woman also reached out for. But it isn't, of course, these tassels that are doing the healing. It is Jesus that is doing the healing. But remember, again, the superstition that is involved with persons of power being able to uh, sort of put out their power uh, through their clothes. And so there is some of this superstition going on, most likely, as we talked about with the, with the woman a couple of weeks ago. But it is their faith that he responds to. It's not the fact that, you know, they have this superstition and that he's adhering to it, but it's the fact that they had faith enough that he was capable of doing it that he allows that to happen. So this occurs through faith. That brings us to the end this evening. I didn't go over as badly as I thought that I might. Uh, so that is that is where we will uh, wrap it up. Uh, Next week, we will hopefully, my plan is to get through all of chapter 7. Uh, again, I say this weekly, we're approaching the midway point. Let me know if you have questions about something that you'd like me to cover more in depth. Um, if you'd like a change of pace and you want to talk about something else for a little while, we've been at Mark for, for quite some time now, and I tried to do some math earlier, and it looks like if we just keep doing it straight through, we're going to be here till November, uh, which... That is a long time, not to say that it's not worth it, but if if you need a break, I would understand. Um, I thank you all again for you know being the, the, the faithful watchers here. I hope some of you who maybe haven't watched us before have enjoyed it, have gotten something out of it. Um, if you have any questions or comments, anything like that, please don't hesitate to let me know by you know, text message, phone call, Although if I don't know your number, I'm probably am not going to answer the phone, so you'd be better to text me. Uh, private message, comment, I, you know, whatever. Just you know, feel free to ask uh, as, you, as you will. I can't think of anything else that I need to say tonight, and so we will have a word of prayer and be dismissed. 
Almighty Father, we thank you again for this opportunity that we've had to study your word, Lord. Uh, we thank you for the message that it has in it, and Lord, that you have given us the eyes to see and ears to hear what it is that you have for us in this lesson, Lord, and we pray that you would continue to do that as we uh, seek to apply it to our lives. Uh, Lord, we pray for those that are on our prayer list, <clears throat> those spoken and unspoken, Lord, and we continue to ask for your uh, guiding hand and edge of protection around all of those who have been impacted by the virus, who may be potentially impacted by it as well, Lord. I pray again for our leaders, Lord. I pray for our church, for all of our churches, Lord, uh, that that we would navigate the, the coming days and months as you would have us uh, to navigate them in the best interest of our congregations, Lord. I pray now that as we, we uh, begin to prepare for our week that we would uh, be wise in the decisions that we make, that we would seek your counsel in making those decisions, Lord, and that you would um, honor our petitions and our requests to you, Lord, um, as they are in accordance with your will. And thank you, Lord, again for this time, for this technology that has allowed us to be here, and we pray for all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much for joining us this evening. If you enjoyed our study, please be sure to like us on Facebook at Methedes KBC or our church page at Kokomo Baptist Church.